Good evening. Welcome to the Cato Institute. I'm Kat Murthy, Cato's Senior Digital Outreach Manager, and you're at Cato Digital. This is an ongoing series of events highlighting the intersection of tech, digital media, and the ideas of liberty. The hashtag for tonight, as always, is Cato Digital, and I highly encourage all of you to join the conversation on Twitter and to use it if you post any photos to Instagram. Uh, those of you watching the live stream can also use it to ask questions for our panel. Now, unless you've been in a coma for the last few weeks, you probably know that the Summer Olympics 2016 in Rio ended this Monday, and the internet loves the Olympics. There's probably no better example of that than this gift from the 2012 London Olympics, featuring US gymnast Michaela Maroney um, in the women's vaulting competition. Now, this gift right here has probably been viewed by far more people far more times than the original competition ever was. And so when Michaela was awarded a silver for her efforts, the internet was just as unimpressed as she was. In fact, so much so that uh, when Michaela visited the White House later that year, President Obama asked her to recreate her signature pose in the Oval Office with him. <laughs> Now, Michaela's not the first Olympian to be given the meme treatment. So in many ways, at this point, you could actually say that the Olympics has a sister event online, the Olympics of memes. And so when the International Olympics Committee, or the IOC, announced earlier this year a long series of strict regulations on how um, non-sponsor brands, news agencies, and more could discuss the Olympics online, the internet was incensed. Uh, trademark terms like Road to Rio, uh, Go for the Gold, and Let the Games Begin were all verboten for anybody who wasn't a paying sponsor. All of those. Uh, other rules included bans on using hashtags like Rio 2016 or Team USA, posting about Olympic results online, using social media to congratulate or wish uh, athletes luck, retweeting official Olympics accounts. This was a really weird one for me. Um, hosting Olympics-themed office parties or other events. And of course, absolutely no gifts. And of course, as you would imagine, the internet really respected all of those rules. <laughs> In fact, so much so that the IOC's Rule 40, the original rule before they extended it, became a meme in its own right. There's a ton of these I can show you right here. Nonetheless, the IOC stood rigidly behind what it saw as its righteous defense of its own intellectual property, uh, bringing to mind a lot of questions about the nature of speech in an increasingly digital world. When conflicts like this arise, what does that tell us about the future of digital media? What is the balance between intellectual property and online speech? How are 20th century institutions like the Olympics adapting to, or not, the fast and loose rules of 21st century internet culture. And on that note, I'm really excited to, uh, to introduce you to our distinguished panel of guests here today. To my left, we have Walter Olson. Walter is a senior fellow at Cato's uh, Center for Constitutional Studies, and he writes extensively on legal issues here. He's uh, very popular in social media, and he's also the principal and founder of the internet's oldest and possibly the most popular law blog, overlawyer.com. You can find him on Twitter at, at Walter Olson. And to Walter's left, we have Jim Harper. Jim's a senior fellow here at the Cato Institute, 
He's working to adapt law and policy to the information age in areas such as privacy, cybersecurity, digital currency, telecommunications, and intellectual property. You can find him on Twitter at, at Jim underscore Harper. And then finally, Julian Sanchez. Julian's a senior fellow at the Cato Institute as well and studies issues at the intersection of technology, privacy, and civil liberties. Prior to working at the Cato Institute, he was the Washington editor for the technology news blog Ars Technica, which some of you may have heard of, where he covered surveillance, intellectual property, and telecom policy. And you can find him on Twitter at, at normative. So on that point, what are the legal parameters that we're looking at with the IOC's rule? Is this standard legal jargon, or is this something special we're looking at? It is something special, uh, especially on the um, trademark side, because uh, the Olympics have their own statute passed by Congress um, in the Carter years and eventually upheld by the Supreme Court in the famous uh, Gay Games decision in 1987, um, which gives them, as to the wording uh, Olympics especially, also as to those five uh, colored rings, which I'm glad you've taken down so that Cato doesn't get sued. Very legal. Um, uh, and uh, as to some of the other uh, words and images, uh, it gives them a uh, special and intense set of rights going beyond what ordinary trademark holders have. Uh, over on the copyright side, things like uh, pictures that may belong to the Olympics, um, uh, the various other uh, productions in which they, uh, they own it because they produced it recently. Um, you have, I think, a more conventional mm -hmm. legal regime. So since you brought it up, uh, there's actually multiple types of intellectual property uh, that we're talking about here. It's not just copyright. There's also uh, trademark, as we saw with the terms, and then also, I believe, trade dress. Trade dress, where um, it looks from the use of colors and shapes and things as if it must be associated, but it isn't. Right. So if, with that in context, uh, what's What's really the difference here? Does it matter from a lay perspective, the difference in these issues when we're looking at topics like this? Well, it does matter. The uh, statute that the Supreme Court ruled on uh, <coughs> gives especially strong protection to the name Olympics. <coughs> and uh, essentially, it says that no one can use it whether or not there is a likelihood of confusion. Now, that's the magical phrase that is usually at the center of trademark cases. Uh, is your use of a particular trademark likely to confuse consumers into thinking that you were authorized or that you're part of the same company or whatever. Uh, Congress kind of swept that aside and said, whether or not there is any likelihood of confusion, you just can't use the word Olympics. And uh, there was some doubt as to whether or not this applied to uh, nonprofits and causes, for example, whether or not it might apply to uh, parodies. Uh, in general, the Supreme Court by a vote of uh, seven to two, took a very unfriendly attitude toward anyone else who might want to use it. They said Congress had an adequate reason to do this in order to boost this particular amateur sport. Uh, it wasn't really that much of an imposition. You have all the other words in the English language you can use. Go use one of them instead. I'm paraphrasing, of course. Um, and um, the dissent by Justices uh, Marshall and Brennan uh, raised what I thought were some uh, pretty compelling points, uh, uh, echoing one of our favorite libertarian judges, Alex Kaczynski of the Ninth Circuit, still sitting on the Ninth Circuit, uh, who had written an opinion below um, saying, look, we should not be ruling so quickly in favor of the mm -hmm. Olympics here because uh, there is a lot of miscellaneous commentary, a lot of uh, publicly interested speech. 
um, uh, playing off the word Olympics that we are just um, allowing to be banned without case-by-case um, uh, -case examination. Now, Kaczynski's opinion, and this is a 1987 case, right? Yeah. That brings up something that Julian was mentioning earlier that I thought was really interesting. I think it's kind of forward thinking, especially when you're talking about something like an online conversation, um, how these terms can really limit your potential audience when you're not able to say specific terms that might be what's used to guide the discussion. Right. Um, you know, one of the interesting things about the case uh, Walter mentioned, the gay games case, was the idea that when evaluating the sort of super trademark kind of protection granted the Olympics, the idea that even if there was not a risk of consumer confusion, which is a traditional standard in trademark law, um, they could have kind of exclusive rights to Olympics, so um, this gay games couldn't use, or gay Olympics couldn't, couldn't use that term. Um, they had to rebrand themselves as the gay games. And part of the idea here was that um, this was basically a pretty minor expressive burden, and that there were plenty of other phrases and words you could use. Um, uh, so you were not effectively being stifled um, by not being able to call your event this particular thing. Um, and the way uh, we use technology has, has, I think, unsettled that assumption. The premise there is that the use of a particular term is fundamentally distinct from and separable from um, the question of how widely you can disseminate your message. The idea here is the rate limiting factor in your ability to reach your audience with uh, promotions, let's say, for your event, uh, depends on your ability to spend money or convince people to uh, distribute flyers and put up billboards and take out television ads. Um, and that that cost is sort of fixed and independent of whether or not you get to use the word Olympic when you are distributing that content. And that was right in the context of 1978. It's not right now where, um, sort of a, in terms of dollar amounts, right, the, the cost factor in reaching an audience of thousands or millions is effectively zero. Um, what is actually now the rate limiting factor in your ability to get your message to an audience may well be, for example, whether you are able to use the specific term that is defining the online discussion. For because instance, hashtag Rio 2016. Rio 2016 or Olympics may be the specific term that people who are interested in that are using to follow public discourse about that event. So suddenly, the inability to use that, um, you know, that specific term becomes not a kind of incidental restriction. You can substitute another kind of language. Uh, but in fact, the most serious sort of limit on your ability to engage in the online public conversation about that topic. It, it, bringing together the, the questions you've asked and, and, and Walter and Julian's thoughts, you know, you, you said, is this something out of the ordinary? Is this, or is this sort of standard stuff? From one lens, this is out of the ordinary, and the particular statute is out, out of the ordinary. Through another lens, a business lens, this is entirely ordinary, right down the middle, because the International Olympic Committee is perhaps best thought of as a media company, a very aggressive, hard-charging media company, though its public image is as uh, 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 an event that brings people together. And right. as a child, I was fully sold on the idea, perhaps, you know, the, the US versus Russia stuff and everybody putting aside their differences most of the time. Um, that's wonderful Dung stuff. Dang. But it turns out that what's really going on here is an aggressive media company. So when they, they work as hard as they can to enforce their general uh, intellectual property rights and, of course, to pursue special 
intellectual property rights like the, uh, like the statute we talked about. I think this, uh, maybe this is implicit in what you just said, but I think there is an interesting tension here, right? We have a statutory regime providing special protections for the Olympics. I think on the premise that the Olympics is special in some way, there's this kind of international uh, celebration of athletics, it's something that kind of brings uh, the world together in celebration of, of amateur, at least formerly, primarily amateur sport. <laughs> um, it's not just another put a for-profit media enterprise to be governed by the, the normal rules uh, applying to that. And yet then, um, you know, they seem to be, uh, you know, gaming the legal system, you know, in, in, a, in a way that would make, you know, Disney, I think, envious. Um, so there's an interesting tension there, I think. And that's that. because of the special legal considerations set out for the Olympics, correct? Well, I think it's, the, the, but the premise of treating them differently is somehow, look, the Olympics is not just another profit-making media corporation. And this came up in the Gay Games case because uh, clearly Congress had provided this special protection out of a sense that there was a special national enterprise going on here. So the uh, plaintiffs turned around, uh, or perhaps they were the defendants, but they, mm -hmm. they said, uh, all right, why don't you take the bidder along with the suite of that and say that uh, it's acting as a government entity, which means that there's a, a scrutiny of whether or not it's applying it evenly to different kinds of speech. And the Supreme Court uh, would not buy that and said by a five to four split, uh, just because we've given them all those special privileges doesn't make the IOC governmental. They're just as private as if they were McDonald's. Right. Uh, so they, they do kind of win uh, a lot. Uh, and the, we'll get later, I think, to some of the parallels with the uh, use of the word Super Bowl, for example, which in some ways has gotten just as right. baroque. Uh, but I wanted to throw in one uh, more wrinkle here, which is that the protection for other trademarks that the IOC may happen to own, like Rio 16 or Let the Games Begin or whatever, mm -hmm. um, all gets its own category of protection. There, there does have to be some, let me quote, uh, uh, f f falsely representing association uh, with or authorization by. Uh, that, that's when they can nail you. And that's a lot better regime. It still isn't quite as good for the public users as conventional trademark law because it doesn't have a couple of defenses, but it's not the absolute we own it, go away forever uh, right that they have over the central name. Mm -hmm. Jim, did you have something you wanted to add? You look like you were well, thinking something this, through. This, uh, I might be skipping ahead our agenda, but what, what, what's interesting about, uh, about this use of trademark or trademark style law is that in conventional trademark, uh, you're talking, it's really a consumer protection intellectual property law differing from, from the purposes of, say, copyright. Uh, consumer protection is served by preventing people from speaking freely. I can't make, I can't exercise my freedom of speech by making um, pink fiberglass insulation because the color pink in fiberglass insulation is owned by Owens Corning. That's how they symbolize it. Their, their uh, insulation is special and different. So I'm curtailed from speaking in that way, if you will. Uh, and that serves a, 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 a consumer benefit because there won't be confusion about who the providers of this, this product are. So that curtailment of my speech um, holds up pretty well against, against First Amendment challenges. Um, on the other hand, if I can't participate in the discussion about Rio 2016, no, no likelihood at all of confusion. Nobody's going to think for a minute that I'm somehow the Olympics or presenting mm -hmm the games or providing um, official accounts of the games, 
um, I use Rio 2016 uh, and, I, and I get sued for it, that's curtailing my ability to speak without that, that mm -hmm. consumer benefit that traditional trademark law uh, uh, provides. So I think that's a, 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 an interesting way that the Olympics special rights um, are in conflict with First Amendment uh, values in a way that trademark law generally is not. So I think this is one of a number of ways IP law is sort of confounded by changes in technology, right? We're now pretty familiar with the way copyright law has sort of had to wrestle with um, the way a lot of the underlying premises of the law um, are kind of challenged by technological developments, right? So it used to be copying, certainly at scale, um, was expensive and, and sort of uh, labor intensive. Uh, and so it actually made a pretty good locus of regulation. You could assume that if someone was uh, making you know, many, many copies of a music CD, this involves uh, pressing plants, you were probably doing this uh, for some commercial purpose to, to sell them. Uh, and so regulating copying was a good way to get at regulating you know, essentially people trying to uh, undercut the genuine producer of that you know, music album um, by not investing in the production and then selling copies, bootlegging. Um, and then suddenly you have a technological environment where everything you do is a copy. Everything a computer does is copying. Every time you transmit or receive an image or a sound on the internet, your computer is making a copy. Every time you listen to a music uh, you know, file on your hard drive or watch it, a copy is made. When you move it from one device to another, you're making a copy. Uh, and so suddenly, what had been a useful locus of regulation was at least technically covering lots of ordinary uh, ordinary activities in ways that required some disentangling. I think something like that is, is, is happening here in a bunch of ways. One we talked about with hashtags. Um, another is, you know, there's this idea of commercial speech being subject to a different sort of standard of First Amendment protection, which makes sense if you understand commercial speech to mean speech promoting some kind of commercial transaction, marketing, right? Because in that context, what might otherwise just be a protected, uh, if, if misleading, claim by a private person becomes something approaching fraud. Um, and it used to be that you could sort of assume that if a corporation spoke publicly to thousands or millions of people, that was engaging in commercial speech, because a for-profit corporation would not spend the amount of money necessary to reach thousands or millions of people um, unless it were doing so with the idea of for the most part, um, making money by selling their product. Uh, again, the kind of changing cost structure of communications means that's no longer the case, right? A, a company with a social media account with, again, maybe millions of followers can reach a huge, huge audience at effectively no cost, um, unless it you know, treats something super embarrassing. Um, and so the idea that you can treat all speech by any commercial entity as commercial speech uh, maybe was not a totally unreasonable premise 30 years ago. is obviously not right now. Um, it also makes it, you know, when you look at some of the things the IOCC is trying to regulate, uh, you see an expansion of the idea of what constitutes commercial speech from um, you know, speech that is commercial to either any speech by a commercial entity to speech in proximity to commercial speech. I mean, so literally you can see layout designs in the IOCC guidelines where they say, it's okay for a news site. These are guidelines for news sites. Um, it's okay to have coverage of the Olympics, meaning reporting on public events. Um, 
if, uh, but they have to be laid out such that the ad can be over here, but if the ad is wrapped, has the text wrapping around it so that the ad is kind of intruding into the space of the coverage, that might suggest an association, and so that's forbidden. I mean, literally, they are trying to dictate to press organizations how they can lay out the pages their news stories appear on. Um, that seems you know, uh, like a, a, a problematic kind of creep. So well, it's interesting to me to, to see a former reporter get really exercised about that. <laughs> On the other hand, you know, I, reporters I think never of, care about that kind of thing. I think, again, taking, taking the IOC as a media enterprise that has control over these essentially entertainment properties and conditioning accreditation. That is, you can come to our, our event and you can uh, you know, go to the Olympic Village and you can enter the stadium in exchange for agreeing to these rules. That's actually can be kind of standard contract stuff. It's and, worth and mentioning one of the first rules that they had on the initial thing prohibited any, any individual attendees of the Olympics from posting any photos that they took, including like selfies, anything like that on social media, and then they rolled it back after the outrage. And there, there, <laughs> there are other environments where a, a, a rule maker like this might have more of our sympathy. Mm -hmm. um, take, for example, Burning Man, which either kicked off this week or is kicking off next, next Monday. Um, uh, they have gone back and forth on precisely what their rules are, but in order to sort of preserve an environment of you know, uh, freedom, of, of free activity and expression, um, they've worked very hard to control people's ability to take photographs and certainly publish photographs from Burning Man. So they've claimed as a, as a condition of your entering into uh, Black Rock Desert that you are licensing you know, their ownership of the copyrights in your pictures. Um, that seems, and, and the Electronic Frontier Foundation has pushed back diligently against Burning Man doing that, but that kind of seems like, rather than the, the media goliath that the IOC is, that's trying to preserve something that a lot of people think are good. So it's not a slam dunk that these kinds of rules mm -hmm. are all bad well, that, all the time. And that's why, to me, some of the more troubling cases in that list that you outlined were the ones where there is no contractual relationship, where someone wants to have an office party right. uh, with the television on uh, and, and an Olympics theme, or, or where someone is uh, tempted to report Olympics news even though they were not there and they were picking it up from the general media and simply mm -hmm. repeating it on their channel. Um, I'd like to go a little bit further, though, on something that Jim raised about what trademark law and the others are about and who they're meant to serve, because certainly part of it is that they serve consumer interests when they are set up well by preventing uh, would be harmful to consumers. But uh, literature is filled, and certainly the Supreme Court in the Gay Games case uh, leaned heavily on this with the idea that like patent law, like copyright law, which tries to induce us writers to write our wonderful books by preventing piracy, uh, that there is an inducement of the IOC to invest in keeping its image wonderful, uh, which takes a lot of money and a lot of policing of bad behavior uh, and, and so forth. Uh, and that in order to um, reward and incentivize the doings of the uh, committees that keeps the Olympic intellectual property, uh, we put up high fences and we make the property valuable by giving them all of these legal rights. And you can, uh, you know, the position of the IP hawks is not uh, particularly inconsistent or, or even unattractive in many ways. The argument might uh, be, look, if you weren't creating intellectual property rights that allowed them to make it self-sustaining, taxpayers would be asked to kick in. And, and they so would kick in. The, and, and, <laughs> and they would kick in. 
Um, the, the, the problem is that you wind up with uh, a, um, uh, something of a signal to use the monopoly powers of the Olympic Committee. Patrick gives it various monopoly powers, not just over names, but also over activities as a money maximizer, even in these miscellaneous areas. So then what is the proper balance between intellectual property and online speech, or even in the case of office parties and things like that, offline speech? I think that that's a great question, and that is the question that we will probably have to beg, because it's a bigger discussion than ours. I'm reminded, Walter, of your uh, entirely valid point of a conference I held a decade plus ago called Copyright Controversies. And one of the memes that came out of that, uh, if we did memes back then at all, was um, how does the $200 million movie get made? If, there, if, if copyright uh, protections are ratcheted back, how are we going to get those big budget features made? Well, the premise in that question is that we're supposed to have $200 million features. And the premise in, in Walter's point, again, a valid one, is that we're supposed to have things like the Olympics with the pageantry and everything else. But People are well entertained by playing their own games, by running their own uh, teams and sports and everything else. Just but like people are entertained by lots of different media. Is it like, do we need all of these copyright rules to have something like the Olympics? Would it be impossible to have it if without these types of restrictions? Were there, or is there something where we could narrow it down and only have a few of the core rules or something else like that? I mean, I, I hear they managed the, the original Olympics without too much in the way of copyright law. <laughs> And my own, my own sympathies, consistent with Julian's, uh, I think consistent with what Julian said, is that you could, you could have events like this uh, without the intense, intense uh, protection of, of intellectual property. You might get bigger, uh, uh, more organic interest in the Olympics if people were uh, allowed to communicate about it using gifts, hashtags, uh, fully freely. Um, but, right. uh, but they've got a business model, and, and that's the way they're working it for now. It's worth you know pointing out that the, in terms of kind of the the, the the implicit threat here of I guess free riding on the Olympics investment, a lot of this cuts in both directions. Um, so the Olympics is is now sort of very upset that the idea that any of the corporate sponsors, not of the games but of individual athletes, might uh, I guess sort of bask in some of that reflected glory, get the advantage of. Uh, an athlete star status at the Olympics without uh, you know directly kicking into sponsor. Um, uh, I mean, to the point where they're, they're essentially trying to claim ownership of facts, um, right? Saying, um, if you are a sponsor of a certain athlete, um, you may not sort of say on, on social media the fact that um, that athlete won the gold and you're happy about this. Um, but the Olympics itself also actually benefits enormously from the fact that even if these companies can't become big dollar sponsors of the events themselves, um, the training. Uh, and and uh, you know, making it viable for these athletes to devote um, their full time to, uh, to preparing themselves to compete at the level that draws international audiences um, is not directly paid for by the Olympics itself. It's paid for by these other companies that um, see some sort of market interest themselves in association with, um, with, with these star athletes. Um, so to the extent that, again, the implicit argument here is we need these very strict controls on their ability to get any kind of spillover benefit from the marketing of the Olympics or their free riding um, seems to only look at one side of the ledger. Um, the Olympics benefits enormously from a level of preparation for uh, you know, audience-worthy competition 
that they're not directly financing at all. Right, and certainly um, these are rules that we've seen with other types of things. For instance, the Super Bowl. Uh, you can't have, if you're in a bar, you can't say you're having the Super Bowl Sunday happy hour or anything like that unless you have some sort of licensing fee. It's the same kind of concept, yeah. right? We well, have superb owl parties. <laughs> right. Although, I mean, the interesting thing to, to, to note here is you see actually, I mean, it's much like Chinese dissidents finding ways to work around the filter, right? Um, all the companies that want to run ads around buy our chip for the Super Bowl or whatever, they just see the big game now. So they're not infringing on the trademark and everyone kind of understands what they're talking about in the same way um, you know, dissidents and repressive regimes will uh, not use the actual term, will find some other way to talk around it. Um, right, everyone the, kind the of ends title of, of this mean. event actually comes from what people were calling the Olympics on Twitter the day that the IOC announced Rule 40. The games that shall not be, right, the, the, the Voldemort event. <laughs> right. And t tying in with this, and, and certainly related to the growth of new media, is um, that it's now common in all sorts of areas of intellectual property for fan-created um, competitive material. For example, uh, the, the fan fiction in which they yeah. take characters from an existing series and write new plots uh, about them, and the, uh, the clubs and countless other things that are done to uh, favorite comic characters and others. Um, the argument has been widely made in, on the libertarian side uh, that most of this fan-based social media, and, and again, mm -hmm. the, this tends to be new because user-created social media has, has boomed, so uh, that it tends to redound in practice to the benefit of the copyright holder. The law, however, uh, <coughs> takes a traditional property rights view of that's for the rights owner to decide, and the rights owner can suppress something uh, even if it was benefiting financially from it because we leave that decision in its hands. As far as, far as what can be done with the Olympic mess, I'd like to go back to what uh, Justice uh, Brennan said and um, you know, on the, the trademark issue, uh, conventional trademark law over many, many decades has woven in First Amendment concerns. It has a better for, uh, fair use uh, defense. It has a better parody defense. Um, I think that whether or not the Supreme Court is willing to do it, Congress should go back and say, look, the trademark protection you get is going to be in line with that. Uh, other people with trademarks have so that uh, you can uh, recover some of that fair use and parity and, and public, public interest usage of it. That would be a pretty easy fix, although it would require getting Congress to do something, so I shouldn't say it's an easy fix. So since, since you're on fixes, um, and I, I agree, I think the Olympics having their own special rules is probably a bit excessive, um, what, are there any fixes that either of you would suggest for how issues like this can be better handled in the future? Well, I'd probably go all the way and, and take away the IOC's special protections entirely. Um, that seems fairly, fairly simple and straightforward, but obviously the fix is 5% of the challenge and 95% of get, is getting it done in Congress. I mean, I would co-sign there. I think, uh, again, if, if the Olympics is going to behave uh, in a way that's you know, indistinguishable from uh, the way Disney or the NFL behaves, except perhaps you know, being more aggressive about it, then uh, let them operate under the, uh, the same rules all those other uh, extremely successful and profitable media companies uh, manage to exist under. Right, certainly. Um, and I do think that you can draw some parallels here. Uh, you mentioned CDs earlier in one of your examples, and uh, when I was looking through this, it kind of seemed to me as if 
there was a clear parallel in what we've seen in um, online piracy cases and issues like that, where at least to some degree, my understanding of it, it it's a little biased, but um, a lot of this has to do with companies lagging a bit behind on the technology and trying to figure out how their profit mechanisms will be able to work as all of these things are changing. Is there truth to that? Would you say that it, that's kind of the uh, incentive structure that we have here, or is there something else at play? Is this very clearly very different from something like piracy laws, things that tell you you can't burn a CD, give it to your friend, that kind of thing? I, mean, I think those are probably more defensible than what we're talking about here. <laughs> um, uh, in the, um, right, I think there's a reason in which, in which um, restrictions on Circulating a, a pirated CD, or in some sense, obviously limiting the dissemination of uh, of speech in, in the literal sense, but it's speech that wouldn't exist without the um, kind of commercial ability to support it in the first place. So the kind of um, you know the net there is is maybe at least arguably um, no more restrictive than necessary to guarantee the underlying existence of the thing. Um, what we see here, I think, is a, a sort of an ancillary spillover, a spillover effect into you know, discussion of facts expressions of attitudes. Uh, again, we have a company in the US that's essentially suing the IOCC to try and sort of establish that it is able to say, um, we support our hometown athletes who are uh, going to the Olympics, which there's a genuine legal question um, of whether they, you know, they're, they're able to express that sentiment. Um, so that seems to me, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it goes beyond saying you can't, um, you can't Copyright the CD and, and uh, or you can't pirate a CD and you know is much more analogous to saying you can't uh, you know say your opinion of the band without their permission. Mm -hmm. there are other right, you're not allowed to post results or. Which is it? I mean, the assumption here is also always that the, the there's a kind of the, the purpose of this is to prevent a kind of free riding on their uh, publicity efforts here. Um, I'm I'm curious what's going to happen as so Speedo as uh, people may know. Uh, said I think it was withdrawing its sponsorship of Ryan Lochte given the conduct of the, some of the American swimmers in Brazil. Um, and there's an open question is, are you now talking not just about limiting marketing, but potentially having an attitude to restrict criticism? Speedo, a non-media commercial entity, wants to say, uh, we're withdrawing our support because of this uh, unsportsmanlike or whatever unseemly conduct at the Olympics. Um, are we going to, again, the, the, the one thing we've, we always try to kind of craft IP law not to um, allow the, the restriction of is uh, criticism, right? You can't say, you can't use trademark law to sort of browbeat people into criticizing your product. Um, but the kind of blanket rules they're at least trying to articulate and scare, uh, you know, risk of worse legal teams into abiding by. Um, are, are extremely broad and without any of the kind of nuance that normally makes uh, IP rules comport with the First Amendment. It, it seems to me like there are non-policy non responses to this. Um, uh, skeptics of the Olympics like me, although I'm not the one to do this because I, I like Olympic pull skeptics. muscles getting off the couch, um, <laughs> could, could, could host their own games every, every four years, call them the open, call them the open games, Without using the word game, is that what you're about well, to tell me? No, no, no. Uh, and and yeah. make them freely available for people to see. Actual amateurs participating As I it, um, together. And I'm not at all an expert in this area. The Carter era statute creating the IOC requires that all uh, groups 
promoting international athletic amateur competition have to funnel their efforts to the IOC. Right, and so like the Special Olympics has bodies. special uh, agreements. But even as far as volleyball and, and mm -hmm. what, what uh, conventional sports by uh, conventional uh, amateur athletes. Um, and, and this, of course, to a libertarian, is the most objectionable part of the whole statute. I, I, wanna, I want the video of the raid that shuts down the softball game right. to be out there for everyone to see. Maybe then we get back into policy discussions. <laughs> um, great, so uh, we're kind of getting to that point. In a perfect world, what guidelines would the IOC have for Pyongyang 2018, for instance? What would they change? Would they have any guidelines? Would it be just a few? Would, there be, would they just have to drop a couple of these? Not, it's not my place to advise a media company, but, but I, would, I would certainly be more open. The direction of things, as you know well, uh, Kat, is to is, um, put it out there. Let people mix and remix with it. Um, hashtags, obviously, are the way you get yourself ingratiated uh, into, into right. the world. Whether they're used Banning by people you from retweeting or, or is... others, right? Yeah, the, the, the direction of things is uh, to let people engage with their media create new media, recreate um, derivative works like, like GIFs, for example, um, help spread the message of an organization like IOC. I don't think they recognize that yet, but if, they're, if they want to thrive in the future, I think that's the direction it'll go. Certainly as a millennial cord cutter, as they call us, I don't have cable or anything like that. Um, I don't think I would have known anything about Michaela Maroney or any of those people if they hadn't been memed and gift everywhere. I don't think also, I mean, you know, maybe recognize the extent to which they are at risk of, of killing the, the um, cultural golden goose in the sense that, you know, I know uh, lots of folks, I, I know at least, and I think in the viewership stats sort of uh, hold this up, right? People who are generally not interested in sports watch the Olympics, mm -hmm. um, which is it's kind of incredible, right? I mean, we'd not, you know, we'd sort of scoff at showing up for a Super Bowl party and get really excited about, like, curling and, 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 uh, and, and <laughs> diving. And, curling's a better um, sport. I mean, but because of the sense that um, the Olympics is this special sort of thing, this, this uh, symbol of putting aside uh, national differences, of uh, engaging in the spirit of sportsmanship, that it's amateur, which means it's not fundamentally um, about uh, you know, selling the most t-shirts or making the most money, um, and the enormous viewership that it draws, uh, again, often from audiences that are not traditional sports watchers, is kind of intimately connected to that sense that um, this is not just another uh, you know, spect money-making spectacle. Um, not that there's anything wrong with money-making spectacles by any means, but the Olympics in particular, I think, depends on a kind of reservoir of goodwill um, that it risks uh, and of you know, a kind of public ownership, that it's, it's something um, we all have a stake and a, and a kind of a measure of participation in. It's our uh, you know, teams and our athletes competing. Um, you know, these are people from our hometowns. Uh, and so to the extent you act in a way that uh, is in conflict with that, uh, you know, that sense of perception, um, I think you maybe you know, end up stomping on one of the things that's driving uh, that, that kind of that unorthodox audience. Right. I noticed, by the way, uh, living in Maryland, which is now known around the world for the quality of its Olympic uh, <laughs> competition, um, I noticed that my social media stream uh, uh, was um, 
uh, on its commercial side, either silent about the outstanding accomplishments of our state or else uh, very poorly worded so as to avoid right. talking about it, but the politicians. You see, just as with <laughs> robocalls, uh, you know, you can't do them for business, but the politicians can robocall you all they want. The politicians seem to have left in an exemption that allows them to boast about Maryland Olympic champions all they want. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually quite interesting. Um, it's actually, the, the IP law would be fantastic if you, sort of, if you actually uh, constrained campaign speech to kind of operate by the same rules uh, that, that operate in sort of uh, the rest of the sector, you could, political speech is rightly better protected, but I think you would see a, a much saner IP regime kind of across the board very quickly. Yeah, all of a sudden they'd want to change a whole lot of rules. Um, so with that, I, I want to have some uh, time for our audience to ask questions here, but in the meantime, I'm going to ask all of you guys to uh, keep in mind, um, because I ask this on all my panels, um, the end of this, just one or two sentences, what you want everyone to take from this discussion here today. Um, so on that note, does anyone have any questions here? I'll start off with a question uh, that I thought was quite interesting, I saw on Twitter. Um, three standard deviations, <laughs> yeah, asks, what's the feasibility and consequences of all people holding the rights to their own image? And a follow-up, would this be libertarian? Well, there go the crowd shots. Right. And um, my own sense is that we've already gone too far in this direction, that uh, by uh, creating IP rights that uh, prevent documentarians from um, uh, taking shots of the streets of a city because distinctive building owners, for example, might have IP rights not to have their building photographed, that um, the last thing we want to do is to um, basically kick photographers out of the realm of everything other than um, uh, events so small where they can get everyone to sign a, a, a waiver. And the, um, uh, we usually consider it uh, a holdover of the past when people talk about losing their soul by being photographed. Mm -hmm. um, the, the trend, uh, not to Hulk Hogan, of course, but the trend for most other people is to be expected to be photographed a whole lot. Um, uh, even in embarrassing circumstances. And uh, I think that's the better rule for a social animal such as humanity. Okay. Same here. I've thought about this a lot uh, in, in uh, privacy terms. Uh, and the idea of using intellectual property like copyright like rules to, to give people better privacy protections. And there are some folks who uh, try to say that information about you is yours in order to put you in a position to protect your privacy. That's a standard um, in a lot of European countries, for instance. I often say that actually implementing that would be like trying to get the Amazon River to flow the other direction because we share so much information about ourselves all the time. Um, the appearance of our faces, for example, are yours for the taking. Um, information that you want to own. I do believe in, in um, treating information as property but you really have to keep it to yourself in order to do so. It's, it's, um, it's more of a, a mechanical protection. Not letting other people observe things is how you maintain them as your own property. Mm -hmm. But once you put them out there, once you're in the, in the audience, in the stadium, people can take a picture of you. When you walk out on the street, the fact that you're on the street, the appearance of you on the street is others for the taking. And I suppose uh, the, to answer the, the rest of the question, I think it would be very non-libertarian to try to give people property rights in um, the appearance of themselves when they're in a public place, for example. 
So, we shouldn't fool ourselves about the bad things that are likely to be coming down the road as big data assembles yeah. um, records of exactly what neighborhood you were visiting uh, last Saturday night. Uh, last and, night, and, actually. And okay, well, you're out every night. But, and collates <laughs> it uh, with your wife's impression of where you had been. But the, um, you know, this will be used for some very anti-libertarian purposes. But exactly as you say, the technology is sufficiently out of the bottle that uh, the likely result of legislation is to prevent the innocuous uh, and helpful users from getting applications while the surveillance people uh, will have it. I think it's worth that, at least if you're talking about kind of the traditional USIP regime, right, there's a sort of constitutionally specified purpose, and it talks about assigning exclusive rights, uh, one, to creators, um, and two, for the purpose of promoting the progress of useful sciences and arts. So, I mean, unless, I guess, reconstructive cosmetic surgery becomes much, much more pervasive, um, that just doesn't apply to things like people's personal appearance. Um, right? You're not going to incentivize people to look better um, by giving them exclusive rights in their appearance. Um, so it just it, it doesn't fall within the rubric that, that we have that, that um, kind of creates this sort of special constitutional regime for, uh, for restricting speech in ways that would otherwise be impermissible. That makes the point, I think, that it's not a constitutional power of the federal government, but you could have so many state laws that say that the appearance of your face is your own property. Really bad idea, but uh, and, But I think you know, also very likely to come in contact with the, with the First Amendment to the extent it makes things like news gathering yep. virtually impossible. That's right. A question back there? I'll repeat the question for the folks on the live stream. So um, I'm going to take the moderator's part prerogative and pull that second question. Uh, I think that was really interesting. So we've obviously been talking largely about US law, uh, but the Olympics is an international event. What, what does that say about uh, copyright and other such things uh, when we're talking about this? And for other countries, well, how is their law impacted? How, yeah, how do we look at this from that perspective? And on that note, I thought it was quite interesting. Team USA is a trademarked uh, Thing, but I didn't see, and of course I don't know all the trademarks, but I didn't see any other team, Russia or anything, trademarked by the IOC. As, as I understand it, the IP uh, legal regimes are also um, nation by nation, and there's no particular reason to expect that other countries will have exactly the same set of rules as the U.S. does. Indeed, the U.S. clearly has some that developed through a historical arbitrariness, mm -hmm. uh, which are not found in other countries. So. Um, uh, if the question is whether there ought to be a worldwide uniform IP uh, regime, I would say, God help us, no. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> your uh, your uh, reference to FIFA is well taken for me because I'm a soccer fan. I became interested, it gives me an opportunity to slip in the, the wry comment that I wanted to. I became interested in the Olympics mostly through the Lochte affair because I myself spent a lot of time drunk in Brazil during the 2016 <laughs> World Cup. Um, FIFA is well known to be a, an aggressive, corrupt media organization, and it uh, probably influences my thinking about the IOC. Um, that they're, they're, pro they're, in my mind, uh, the way I feel about it, there are pretty strong parallels between the two, and they're uh, pursuing their interests as opposed to necessarily ours. Great. I'm just, I apologize to say, um, uh, so obviously the, the 
implications of, of their uh, attempts to enforce these kind of rules extend beyond the U.S., but just I think we have uh, one, it's just there's too many different legal regimes to say anything intelligent that would apply to, um, you know, all of the countries implicated, and, and frankly, I think probably no one on this stage knows enough about um, the specific legal regimes of, uh, of other countries to, uh, to do much more than sort of embarrass ourselves if we tried to, um, to get too far outside the borders of the U.S. The Burkina Faso trademark law that was fascinating. We'll, we'll have to leave that for another day. <laughs> That's a good question, uh, and we got a couple tweets asking a similar thing, too. Who is responsible for legally enforcing these rules, particularly around the hashtag is this something where Twitter is legally required to take down tweets that use the hashtag for unauthorized means? Um, does the IOC have to send a court order to Twitter for them to do that? Is there some other body? How, how is this enforceable? As we saw, it wasn't very well enforced. Congratulations, <laughs> you may win. Stump the panel. Paul Levy undoubtedly knows more than I do. I believe that there is some play in the joints as far as each social media company, rather than automatically having to take down uh, everything uh, that is the subject of an infringement demand, um, has a certain amount of judgment about, look, this is out of left field. This is obviously not infringing. We're not going to take it down just because they say. Mm -hmm. They also have discretion to take down things where they agree with the uh, requester, say, wow, that sure is infringing. And tons mm -hmm. of Olympic clips disappear from YouTube constantly, right. uh, as YouTube I understand is, it, yeah. because YouTube uh, has one of the most sophisticated methods for recognizing infringing video. Right. So it, ma it matters, for, I mean, so with, for, if, if the claim is, is copyright infringement, right. someone has posted a, a copyright infringing image or video, um, there is a statutory framework of what's called notice and takedown, um, where there's a sort of prescribed set of procedures where um, essentially a company submits a notice that they think a particular piece of content is infringing. The uh, uh, company then essentially notifies the uh, person who posted it, and unless they sort of object and say they're willing to kind of go to court to fight, the thing gets taken down, um, and they can kind of protest if they want it put back up. Um, and then the company, the, the company has to comply with this to preserve its sort of safe harbor, meaning its, its um, freedom from liability for contributory copyright infringement in those cases. Um, and also, when you're talking about systemic conduct, companies can be kind of are required by the statute to um, use sort of the current technological best sort of standard or best practices to um, try and filter out uh, infringing material. Uh, to the extent that's feasible, uh, but that doesn't but apply to trademark. Trade. So yeah. there's no kind of parallel um, required process that would sort of force them to, um, to in effect, you know, uh, in police trademark um, on behalf of uh, of the Olympics, which of course is um, kind of reasonable because, or to the extent that, uh, you know, so if someone has at least an extended copyrighted clip that's being posted on a site. Um, it may be fair use, but um, you know, it's at least somewhat reasonable you know, in, in a lot of cases to kind of say, yeah, no, okay, this doesn't seem like it falls into one of the fair use categories. It's, this is the material. It is being posted. Um, so at least sort of prima facie, there's a, a reasonable claim of, of a copyright infringement. Trademark, that's, I mean, that's just a, a much crazier thing, right? You can't, um, there's not really a good automated way to do You can automatedly detect whether Yes, what's been posted is a copyrighted image. 
Um, but it's certainly obviously not a trademark violation anytime someone says Olympic. Mm -hmm. So um, it, it would just not be possible for, um, for these companies to in any kind of reasonable way try to adjudicate in any given case where a particular term is used, whether it constitutes a violation of trademark law or of the, um, you know, the, the kind of special super trademark statute protecting I think, certain Olympic I think it's terms. interesting you brought up the fair use too, and I'm of course not at all anywhere near an attorney, but um, it seemed to me that, there, that the rules for news agencies included things such as only being able to use six minutes of Olympic footage in a day unless they were a sponsoring news agency uh, could potentially violate that. You have, and it ended up with things like that local reporter who uh, did his entire broadcast uh, using footage of his own high school wrestling game as he was talking about the Olympics because he didn't, they'd already run past their amount for the day. Um, I mean, do you think that there's any sort of conflict there or? Yeah, I mean, there's no, um, there's no, Is that know, fair use? no, nowhere, nowhere in copyright law will you find anything like six minutes as sort of the right. setting no, the boundaries. The uh, right, right. <laughs> right. Um, I'm just saying, you know, the courts have been clear that the the what so fair use, just I guess to to say this outright for the non copyright geeks watching, um, is the idea that there's a variety of reasons for which you can use copyrighted material uh, in ways that might otherwise be infringing, but it will not be regarded as an infringement uh, if it constitutes uh, you know, use for a particular purpose. Um, commentary, academic, certain academic uses, uh, editorial review, parody, um, are things that fall within the ambit of fair use, and there's a kind of complex four-pronged test for whether um, a particular use of a copy um, constitutes a fair use or not. Um, uh, but there's nothing resembling any kind of hard limit like that, uh, and you see Courts in different cases saying, um, quoting even uh, a few sentences from an entire book may not be a fair use if these are the most sort of exciting or the, the very meat of, uh, of the thing. So uh, a very tiny uh, relative proportion uh, might still be too much to be fair use. Um, whereas in other cases, to the extent it's necessary for the fair use purpose, um, actually quite substantial uh, copying of even the bulk of, of something like a news article uh, might be permitted if, if necessary for commentary. If you were doing, for example, a kind of line-by-line -line refutation of a news article, you might need to copy uh, a very substantial portion of it uh, to make your point. Um, so I think six minutes is they, they want a, uh, a clean line that they can try to enforce while saying, we're giving you enough for legitimate news commentary sort of purposes um, that um, don't cross over into you're just rebroadcasting our uh, our copyrighted content in the under the pretext of reporting on it. Yep. <laughs> Again, I think we should to be to to be clear the um, right the, the sort of safe harbor from liability for the content posted by users. Um, the exception I think, I think he, he means to, to to refer to there is the idea that. Um, if they do not comply with the sort of notice and takedown regime, they can vet, that is to say, if after being notified, this user is posting copyright infringing content, um, they don't remove it and follow the, the procedures outlined in the statute, they lose uh, their safe harbor and they can be held liable. Um, but that is not, that, that doesn't uh, apply to trademark infringement. So there's no, there's no sort of process there uh, required to comply with to qualify for a safe harbor with respect to um, a user posting 
content that, that, uh, that somehow violates a company's trademark. I saw a question right there. This will be our last question. So the question was whether or not there should be different treatment for uh, trademark, which has its roots in more commercial purposes, versus uh, patent and um, copyright, which have their roots in more um, innovative or artistic. And I hope, I hope we've been pretty sort of strict about trying to specify which uh, subcategory of IP we're, we're talking about here. Um, but Rami, that's absolutely right, of course, right? Uh, um, copyright and patent are themselves distinct, but, but really um, are about sort of creating artificial scarcity in public goods to incentivize production. Um, trademark is really traditionally about consumer confusion, although again, the Olympics is in a kind of strange um, case here where again, the Supreme Court has ruled that um, they have a kind of special super trademark where um, the risk of consumer confusion, which is traditionally kind of key to whether a trademark violation uh, has occurred is not necessary in the case of their exclusive rights over a certain set of uh, Olympic associated terms. My thought on this, on, on this question, we were, were you know, bouncing among trademark and copyright. You mentioned patent. I think of these things in the administration of them uh, the way you might think of a hand saying stop. So these, the, my fingers are the actual doctrines, the actual mm -hmm. law. But in between my fingers are things where the law would allow you to go. But the administration of it is so difficult, and I think the IOC mm -hmm. takes advantage of this, that you can't go anywhere where the hand is. Mm -hmm. Most actors in this area, they stop all of their, all of their communications rather than going, hey, this is, a, this is a, a way of acting that isn't violative of the trademark and it isn't violative of the copyright, I'm gonna do it. No, instead, mm -hmm. They're just, they're just not going anywhere near there. And that's right, how the, because you the, don't want to get, you don't want to face the threat. The litigation issues and the threat of litigation causes more than what the law calls for although, to be prevented. Interestingly, um, it occurs to me, I, I looked, of course, at the, the case we're all, all talking about here, the gay games case, um, concerning the sort of special status of uh, the IOC um, with respect to its, its sort of trademark terms, is that if you look at the rationale there, it really does actually sort of seem like the court is taking what is clearly a kind of trademark kind of protection, um, that is to say it concerns particular terms, not some kind of content created by the IOCC, um, but because it's sort of saying consumer confusion isn't necessary, is really using a traditional copyright rationale to justify the regulation. It's, it's, it's not saying uh, these rules are here because we have to ensure consumers will know what they're buying, um, but rather, well, we need to try and allow them to internalize all the benefit of their investment in promoting the Olympics. So it's a kind of unholy kind of legal chimera. And I, I was making exactly that point. We don't have to necessarily endorse them, but uh, you read that opinion and that clearly is what they were doing. And possibly one of the uh, reasons for doing so is that one of the issues in the case had been uh, the argument that the word Olympic was generic all along. It was born generic, as it were, because uh, by the time any of us uh, were, were born, uh, it had already been part right. of the uh, uh, human experience. And the court had to, years. if it were to arrive where it wanted to arrive, it had to uh, dismiss the idea that the word was a, a generic inheritance. So it came up with this um, discussion of how a previously useless waste word right. had been cultivated like a lovely garden 
by the efforts of, since the late uh, 19th century of people who had brought back the Olympic concept right. and uh, invested so much just as if they were writers or inventors. Um, not quite sure whether I accept that analogy, but that was what the court said. But their efforts to justify it were Olympian. Hi -oh. <laughs> you are okay. right, sir. On that high note, uh, <laughs> I warned you of this. What one or two sentences, what would you like the audience to take from today's discussion? Well, to grab an idea that Jim had, uh, in practice, people who don't have expensive lawyers just, uh, and, and do have assets to lose, just stay away from gray areas or even from legal areas. And that's a feature generally with litigation. It's a feature with um, aggressive uh, assertion of rights, both intellectual and otherwise. Over-lawyering. Um, Over-lawyering, thank you for hyping my site. But, uh, but America gets these sorts of issues wrong often because of our lack of loser pays and our incentivization of aggressive lawyering in various ways. And that, too, is part of the problem. So my brief thought um, actually makes use of a phrase that could have been trademarked, probably, and wasn't, by Chuck D. in Public Enemy. Uh, don't believe the hype. Don't watch the Olympics. Go outside and play. <laughs> okay. Uh, I guess that, you know, this is a pattern we've seen a lot over the past couple decades, which is um, as technology democratizes communications and, and sort of undermines the premises on which a lot of legal structures are built, the um, reflex of uh, often sort of conservative large institutions is to attempt to reassert uh, uh, control. Uh, this is almost always uh, both futile and, and counterproductive um, and ends up uh, you know, sort of interfering uh, to a much greater extent with ordinary people's speech, often under the, sort of the, the aegis of legal regimes that were intended really to um, only regulate kind of specific kinds of commercial conduct. Uh, I think we're seeing that again. I think uh, the result is likely to be um, what it is in every case, which is that they're not having much success, but um, they will probably end up uh, uh, running up a lot of billable hours in the interim. <laughs> uh, so on that note, thank you, Julian, Jim, Walter. Um,